Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. This week, our CEO, John Ralston, sits down with Nevada's new governor, Joe Lombardo, to talk about everything under the sun in Nevada politics. They go over the first few weeks of the governor's tenure, his plans for Nevada, education, housing, and a whole lot more. This is an edited version of the highlights from our event. You can find the full version on our YouTube channel or on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. governor just gave his state of the state. He did not have to say, yeah, I'll agree to sit down with John Ralston for 90 minutes. Any regrets yet? No, absolutely not. You know, it's interesting. The last time you and I met, you asked me that, you know, early on in the process and when I made the decision to run for governor. And, and no, absolutely not. I'm, you know, obviously I'm happy because I, I won. But even if I didn't win, there would have been no regrets in the process. I, I, there would have been regrets that I didn't do it. And I'm happy with, as the results, obviously, and, and I'm looking forward to what we can do here in the state and affecting change and, and all the reasons why I ran. You haven't been doing this that long, but I'm just wondering, Governor, have you, have you been surprised by anything yet? Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, during the process, how extreme the partisanship was, that surprised me. But post-process, in my opinion, a good idea is a good idea, no matter who it comes up from, no matter who says it. And to build off that, you know, a good idea is no matter who it comes from. And the reference of that, and I noticed you said, it, you said something to this effect in one of your tweets was, post the state of the state, I, I believe I created an environment for everybody in that room to, to experience some success. And... It was unfortunate to see some people that didn't support, you know, in totality, some of the things I said. So that that really surprised me. That really surprised me. So what do you mean? Because all you did was hand out candy that night, right? So you have everybody. Well, that's what I thought I was doing, but there were still people sitting on their hands, and and that's what I was talking about. No matter if it's a good idea, no matter who's saying it, whether there's politics involved or not, you got to come to terms with it and, and show some maturity and say, hey, all right. This is what it's about moving us forward. So So it's interesting that you mentioned that because it's one of the things I wanted to ask you about early in this, Governor. I mean, everyone knows what the setup is. There's two Democratic houses. They have have a a supermajority in one house and and a sizable lead in the other. And here we have a Republican governor. I mean, the cynics in this room, not that I'm one of them, would would say, you know, this is going to be gridlock. Nothing's going to get done as opposed to what you said. If it's a good idea, we should all embrace it. There shouldn't be partisanship. So I'm wondering what you think your responsibility is to make sure that that's not what the session is. Are you going to meet with the Democratic leaders? Have you met with them? Are you going to do it regularly? Tell, Tell us about that. Well, let, let's back up a little bit and I'll answer your question. So a big part of this is actually approval of my budget, right, and, and the, the general fund budget. And, and hopefully they see some, some benefit to that. And then the second part of this is the legislative process. You know, laws coming forward to the benefit or the detriment of, of Nevadans, and you have to make a decision which one you'll support and which one you won't. And, and you mentioned it, you know, the, the situation I've been put in as a result of the legislative process or, or the, the majority on the Democratic Party versus a Republican governor. And the rise and fall of any organization is either the robust communication or lack of communication. And I come to terms with that. 
knowing I'm going to have to communicate so we have some, we're not caught in gridlock. So, yeah, I, I plan on meeting with them. I've already met with them more than once, the leadership. And then hopefully it'll be on a regular basis moving forward. And I, and I asked uh, Brian Sandoval what his plan was because at three out of four of his legislative session, he had a minority. And, and he said it was just regular meetings on a regular, regular defined schedule and talk about the issues. You think you're as charming as Brian Sandoval, though? <laughs> <laughs> Brian Sandoval's never been a police officer. So. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about, you've had these initial meetings. You saw Speaker Yeager's response to your state of the state, probably. No, I didn't see it, but I was told about it. Okay. But so where do you see common ground with with the Democrats in the legislature? Well, you know, I pride myself of being a little bit of a wonk and talk about data and science. and, And I think a lot of it, if you're faced with the facts, it's hard for you to deny it. And if we present facts, let's use criminal justice reform as an example. And I saw that he said that, the, you know, his ideas or his, his bill, AB 236, is working. And I have to flat disagree. I have to flat disagree because if you put it in proximity of when it was passed to the data that's provided from that point to this point, it's going in the wrong direction. So hopefully there's some sense of understanding on that. And I, I know he used the words dead on arrival. And hopefully that's just political theater. And, you know, we get through the, the, the session and there's discussion to be taking place and, and your constituents, you're concerned for your constituents and, and base your decisions on reality versus personal emotion. And we'll get past that. This is definitely where you're going to be a little bit at loggerheads with the Democratic legislature. They passed this, what they call criminal justice reform. And you, frankly, you think you're going to be able to persuade them through the use of data that that you are right and they are wrong in this? I mean, you you essentially think that that bill made this state less safe, don't you? I do. Absolutely do. I mean, we've had a significant increase in the homicide rates, significant increase in violent crime across the board, significant increase in property crimes across the board. And if you look at AB 236 and the definition of repeat offenders and the, the recidivism that is defined in AB 236 and the sentences and the, you know, the the, the penalties that go along with committing crime, repeat offenders, it's all going in the wrong direction. You have to look at the data. And, you know, a lot of times what I've noticed in my testimony up at the legislatures in years past, there's a lot of anecdotal stories. And a lot of times it's not apples and apples. It's not the same size population that we're doing with. It's a different size jurisdictions, a different demographic, different social structure. So you have a you have a single digit increase in crime and violent crime. You have a double digit increase in property crimes, and that is exactly in close proximity of the ba- passing of AB 236. I'm I'm doing legislative testimony as we speak, and and you can't deny that. You you can't deny that, and and then it's important for people to realize that. You really made a commitment to something that is sloughed off by almost every legislature and governor, and that's mental health. There are a lot of people trying to do a good job, but they don't have the resources, Governor. Often the private sector has to pick up where the public sector falls down. It sounded to me in your speech that you really believe that, that, that investing in mental health is something that is going to happen this time. Yeah. Talk about it. 
Absolutely, and you're, you're correct. I had the state of the Clark County School District this morning. I went to that, attended, and wanted to see what the superintendent had to say in the education space. What is the biggest issue? Is it the teacher pay? Is it, is, is, is it the size of the classrooms? They all said it's mental health. It's mental health. And we're, we're seeing it proliferate across the United States. It's not unique to Nevada. It's not unique to Las Vegas. It's a big draw on your, on your budget in the state and the county budgets. And you alluded to it. What is the answer to the, the problem? Well, everybody tries it, right? One is the car, they think incarceration is the answer to the problem. We know that's not true. And then they think it's affordable housing and, and housing for the problem. We know that's not the problem because 80-plus percent, if you gave them a place, they won't go stay in it, okay? And then the other the piece is on is counseling. And then what I have seen, what I have seen in my career in law enforcement is not necessarily long-term, but a medium-term of bed space. It's, it's the ability to put somebody in a safe space, an ability to have a complete a medical evaluation, and more than a three-day supply of psychotropic SSR drugs to get your mind right. And we don't have that. It's expensive as hell to it's do that. It's expensive as hell. But you have to look at the quality of life for each. Everybody in this room, you know, when they leave their house in Summerlin or wherever it may be, and you drive out and you see a person experience, you know, and, and they're troubled mentally or their financial situation, and as a result, they're homeless, it's expensive. You have to deal with that, and you see it proliferating, you know, and when I was growing up, nobody ever saw a homeless person in, in Summerlin. But now it's, it's, it's the society we live in now, and we have to get used to it, and we have to come up with solutions for it. And beds are the solution. So I want to ask you one other public safety question before we talk about some other things. That is the topic of gun violence. You and I talked to each other a few times during the mass shooting here, the worst in history. That was an incredibly harrowing experience for you, I know. It's, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's seared into your memory, into your soul. You'll never forget it. Do you believe, I know it's tough for a Republican to talk about this, but do you believe there's no laws that can be passed that could help with this? No, I don't believe that. There's a lot of, lot of, a lot of passion on both sides of this issue. But what quite often gets lost in the rhetoric or the discussion of it is there is robust laws on the books. And so, you know, when you talk about criminal justice, it's, it's a three-pronged issue, right? you got the, the police and the prosecution and defense and incarceration. And quite often, the gun discussion gets lost in the prosecution piece. And we have very robust laws on the books that have an influence on gun violence and the ability to control the gun culture. And what we have to do is stand to the plate and, and call upon our prosecutors to prosecute individuals with those type of crimes. So is there something that you think you could agree with the Democratic legislature on, on gun violence? Well, you know, <laughs> you don't want to pine on what ifs your whole life. I'd be interested in what would come forward. We have more guns in the United States than anywhere in the world. And... And people need to realize that. So how do you fix that? Even if you put gun control measures in now, you, you, you're not going to have an effect on what's So existing. you just give up? No, you don't give mm-hmm. up. You, you keep the, coming up with sound ideas that, where you can have a consensus, and then you, and you continue to have the conversation. 
So let's talk about getting rid of some of the COVID-era regulations let's, where, where people were working remotely. State workers now have to come and work out of their offices. And to me, and to, it seems like there could be an argument made, Governor, that you're, you don't understand how the world has changed since the pandemic. A lot of private businesses have now accepted that some of their employees are going to work remotely. And in some ways, it can be more efficient if you're not a public-facing person in state government, for instance, why shouldn't you still work, work at home? What's the argument for doing this blanket, everyone has to come to work again? You know, the world has changed. People can work from home, you know, sometimes better, and, and not all play people are front-facing to the public. And you and, might lose talent. All right. You might lose good people well, if you, you know implement what? Um, this. It's called a job for a reason. My issue with that is my observation... My experience and part of even my campaign platform was my one-on-one interaction with state government and the failure for anybody to answer a phone, the failure for for an individual who is looking for their their unemployment benefits to get an answer to their question. You know, you're left in the queue for two weeks or you're, you're on for four hours and you're not getting an answer. That's directly related to people not putting eyes on an individual and feeling their pain, right? You, you could, it's easy to ignore somebody from your living room, right? And, you know, or Don't the, I know it. Or the computer screen, <laughs> right? Or the, your computer screen. And in my opinion, government service is a service. It's a service to the constituents. And that's where we've lost our way in that space. And, but part of that is just like with the, the ordinances and the regulation is we provide them a template, and you tell me why it, you are going to perform better at home, and how are we going to measure your work product? What is the accountability associated with that? If you're going to work from home, we're going to have to measure your work product, right? And, and we have to be able to have them identify how we're going to do that. So you're open to some people doing yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's, okay. Not, it's not across the board, okay. and, and, and some of it does make sense. You know, like... You know, it's, the state is a big, big organization, and it goes across the rural jurisdictions, and the offices are in disparate locations. And, and the, I'll use the Department of Wildlife as an example. You know, 75% of your people in the Department of Wildlife don't go to an office. Their, their work is out in the field addressing wildlife issues. So that's not lost on me, but justify it to me. So... Let's, let's talk about the budget that you're, that you're proposing. That, that's really what every legislative session is about, is what every governor, right. state of the state is about. $11 billion. By far the biggest budget in history. Two years. Yeah, but it's still by far the biggest budget in history. Are you sure you're a Republican? <laughs> yeah, but don't get lost to how much is going to be in savings. So I think that's the important piece on that. It's not all spending. It's not the expansion of government. You know, the executive order is trying to downsize government. But whether it's being utilized appropriately with accountability on the backside. And I think that's what's been missing. The key word I'm going to use tonight, and hopefully you remember, is accountability. And that's your money. 
and we got to have some accountability associated with it. So yeah, fortunately, you know, the, the, the winds were in my favor. You're, you're coming into a, my first year of my tenure and we don't, we're not, I'm not in a crisis budget, but let's do something appropriate with it. And one of the key lines in that was no reoccurring projects. It's going to be, you know, a lot of time, it's going to be a lot of one-time spend, you know, like the fixing of state buildings for quality of life for the workers, building upon the, the rainy day accounts, the savings accounts to, to ensure that we, in case we are, you know, hit with some pandemic or this proverbial recession that we're in fear of here currently, that we are able to accommodate and to include the rainy day and savings fund for the education system, you know, the, the cost that was associated with, you know, kids going home and, and having laptops and access and information to continue with their education. All that's got to, you have to have that sequestered and put away for a rainy day. Let's talk about something that I think you're pretty proud of, too, in this budget. I, I said somewhat facetiously that you handed out candy in the state of the state to try to please everybody. And one of the things that you talked about was tax cuts. So one of the things you said is a tax cut is this idea of suspending the gas tax. And it's a $250 million item. But you, you, you really don't have any idea if that's a, a $250 million tax cut. You don't have any assurances that the price at the pump is going to change at all, that these corporations are going to say, oh, yeah, we're going to pass that on. You promised hundreds of dollars in, in tax cuts for, for, for individual Nevadans. I mean, that seems like fuzzy math to me, Governor. So this is, you really have no idea what that's going to do, do you? Well, I have somewhat of an idea. I mean, obviously, you can't predict anything into the future at 100%. But if you look at trends and, and averages across the board and then you have at least three or more data sets, yeah, you can get in close proximization of that. Yeah, $250 million, maybe $210 million, you know, or, or it may even be $270 million, okay? But it is a benefit to the consumer and the constituents that feel the pain the most. The feel the pain the most, you know, some of us in the room, you probably don't feel that pain, but, you know, I do. I'm on a, a civil service pay, but and it's... Do you drive it, a gas guzzler, too? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I'm okay. sorry. But, but, the, but it does. It, it, may, it may make the difference in their life and the ability to put food on the table. And if I have the ability to do that, do it. But that's, that's money that could be used for the infrastructure of this it's state. It's still going to be used for the infrastructure because we're going to backfill that $250 million with that $1.6 billion you described. You have a lot of money to throw around, don't so, you? So, but yeah, that's a, that's a concern, and, and that's an education piece. You know, I, got, I started having some people panic because that fuel tax, you know, funds infrastructure and different yeah. and, and, and FTEs, full-time employees, and, and things like that. And I said, no, we have that allocated. We have that budgeted, and we have it identified. We're going to backfill that from the savings to the constituents. I do want to talk about some other things you talked about in the state of the state. One is, you talk about savings, $315 million for the Nevada Way Fund, a new sub-account to be used for transformational economic development projects and critical infrastructure needs in areas such as emerging markets in the north and south ends of the Las Vegas Valley, as well as in other emerging markets in Nevada. Tell us, tell us what the Nevada Way really means. What does it really mean? Never give up. Never stop dreaming. <laughs> but but I, I know where the question is going. What it means is, and, and it, you alluded to it in the first first few words there, transformational. The way the government system is set up, especially when you're on a biennium system, is you sometimes lose opportunities. And, you know, you have a, say, you, you know, you want to diversify the economy, you want to bolster the economy, and you have this significant industry that wants to put roots into your, your state boundaries, 
and and they're, they're looking for you know assistance from the state to make that happen and, and that that's pretty common practice for states to, to form that partnership and, and so you can get that process going. It's just a cumbersome process and we're missing opportunities out there to be successful. But to address that, because I know the Democrats' concern with that is, is you know, well, you're, you're just having your own personal slush fund. No, if you look at what I provided as justification, the executive branch gets involved in the process, okay? The way it is set now is just solely the legislative process. And I think it's important for the governor to have some autonomy and some ability to help the state out. And that's what I was elected for. And I don't want to miss those opportunities. But the oversight and the control of that and the protection of that is I identify the leadership on both houses of the legislature to also be a part of the approval process. Let's talk about the education proposals that you have. And let's, you're pouring $2 billion dollars. In, into the education system in this state, which is unprecedented. It's a fantastic amount of money. I think you're increasing the per-pupil student spending by $2,000 or so per spending. So some of your friends on the right might say, what are you doing? This system has not been working here. You're pouring $2 billion into a failed system. Why are you doing that? What do you say to that? You know, if you look at the education system, it's a pre, you know, in my opinion, you know, if you could probably say 10-prong system, but more importantly, I think it's more of a three-prong system. You have your, your, your educators, your teachers, and, and your wraparound services to breed success into the thing. You have your pupils and what their resources could be brought to bear to help them become educated, which is the pupil-centered funding formula and how you divvy up those resources and then you have, I don't really want to put it, infrastructure, you know what, you got to have infrastructure because one of the issues that we experience in the education, especially in the state of Nevada, is your teacher per student ratio. We're one of the lowest in the nation in overcrowding in schools, and that becomes infrastructure, right? And, but then part of that, if you build more schools and you spread it out, you got to have teachers in the pipeline to occupy that occupancy. So it, it's a circular issue. And and people say, well, you're just throwing more money at a failed system. No, you need money for all those different issues associated with the system. People say, well, it's just teacher pay. It's just for the union. It's just teacher pay. Yeah, that is part of it, right? They, 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 need, they deserve a quality of life and a good living, right? But that's only part of it. That's only part of it. The other is the infrastructure to put the kids in because of uh, uh, student ratios. The other one is ensure that you have the right curriculum. The other one is you have a quality seat for that student with resources to come along with it. But the third part, the other part on that is options. And we're going to talk about that. I'm sure you're going to talk about school choice, right? Yeah. So it is. It is throwing money into the system, but it's building the system. And the key component on this outside of that, and I'm sure you're going to mention it, is I mentioned accountability all along the way. All along the way, and and that's where I think we have failed. I want to get to a couple other things, including what you alluded to, which is school choice, which you talked about during the campaign, and and the governor argued with you about that. There were a lot of people upset about it. They're even more upset now that you talked about school choice in in, in your state of the state. But, But there are people, again, on the right who say, we finally got this Republican in here. And what is he doing? He's doing half measures. The core of school choice in this state when it was passed and upheld by the Supreme Court governor was education savings accounts. Most expansive program 
in the country. On Joe Lombardo's campaign website, he said he's going to invest in education savings account. And yet, that's not what you said in your state of the state. What are you afraid of? What are you leaving out of that, that narrative? I, I, I think my narrative was complete, sir. It was <laughs> repealed by the Democrats. But, but you, all you had to do is propose it again, right? Well, and it's not as simple as that when it made it to the courts, right? So, yeah, you can propose it, but we need to do something in short order versus, you know. So you've given up vision. on education savings accounts? No, I haven't gonna... given up on it at all. But I, I need to do something now. We have to fix something now. And we've got to start moving forward now. And part of that is, you know, and, and yeah, education savings accounts. So you could have school choice, right? But if you don't have the ability to have that money follow that kid to go wherever they want, it doesn't make sense. There's only so many. If you have a magnet school and you have a magnet school and the kid wants to go to magnet school, well, there's only a limited number of seats, right? You're not expanding on that opportunity. So right now, in short order, the answer to that question is opportunity scholarships. And, and you'll have the people on the right says, well, you didn't fund it, right? Well, we doubled the request for opportunity scholarships from you know 25 million to 50 million okay but part of that the requirement to receive an opportunity scholarship is is funding so and they base it off a of family afford and the poverty level which is 28,000 in today's dollars and they you you qualify plus 300% of that so right now it's 50-something thousand. If you're your family, they'll give you a scholarship if you make less than this, all right? But the proposal moving forward with one of my bills into this school choice answer is to increase that threshold to 500%. So you're bringing more people that bring a lot so more So you bring kids. more people into it. So, you know, there, there's a person out there that says, why well, should I put a billion dollars into opportunity scholarships? Well... You can only eat an elephant one bite at a time, and you don't have you don't have the people to inject into a billion dollars. You don't Maybe have you're the just opportunity. Not hungry enough. Well, Maybe no, you're just it, not hungry everything's tight. You got you got to be methodical about change and, and figure out the unintended consequences along the way. And so we'll increase that to five hundred. So that'll put you in you know the ninety to one hundred fifty thousand threshold. We had the most expansive school choice program in the country when Brian Sandoval proposed it. Why wouldn't you just go and say, we're going to do this again, exactly what Brian Sandoval did, who apparently has a bigger appetite than you and can eat the whole elephant? Why not do that? Because of the situation I've been put in with the legislature. There's no chance of getting it on. Uh, I I, got to be pragmatic about it. I got I got to have more discussion. I have to have more support going forward. So it's just it's political reality, essentially, is what you're saying. Well, sometimes it is, but I, I don't want it to be lost on people because they're frustrated that we didn't get the expansion on school choice that we asked, you know, we're expecting. And, but we are. We have, a, we have a design in place to get us there in the short order, and then we'll look at bigger bites as we move forward. <clears throat> that's, that's, that's very candid of you, and I appreciate it. I, I guess... What I'm wondering is, if at all you're concerned that what some would argue about school choice, that using public dollars for private schools is essentially going to lead to the gutting 
and maybe the dismantling of the public education system as we know it. Are, are you concerned no, about I, that? No, I don't agree with that. And, and just like I said before, when you make decisions, especially at this breadth and this size and magnitude, is you have to rely on if other people have done it. You, you don't ever want to be the beta agency in something, a decision, and, and there's been proven success across the board no matter where you look. You also do support a vo- vo- voter ID. Yeah. Which, again, is, is a controversial proposal. You don't think it should be controversial, though, even though it might be harder for some people than it would be for others? What's the controversy? Well, the, the, the controversy is that some people don't want to get a, a, an ID like that and that the process works fine the way it is. But you're, you're talking, I, I'd like to find somebody that doesn't want to get an ID that they, they utilize in their daily lives. And so there, there's a... I, I, I'm not. I'm not very familiar with, and, and this might be my ignorance. I might not. I'm not very familiar with a, a significant portion of the population that's able to vote that isn't in possession of an ID. So. So I, I want to wrap this up because we're getting close to time. The Democrats have already said this is a non-starter. You, yeah, they did. You've, you've heard. You've heard that, and you expect. Why is but but here's one thing, you know, everything's in the spirit of compromise. If, if we can do one or two or a couple items on this, I'm, I'm all for it. But I don't want a loggerhead on this because if you look at it, it's a majority positive issue. If you look at the, the polls associated with voter integrity, the majority of people says there needs to be change. And so if we can't get some process in this, yes. I'll ask for it to go to a vote of the people. You've said that. And that's- I'll ask it to go to a vote of the people. But here's one thing, just at top head, top line. I know, I know, I, I know, I feel that, that they're going to be amenable to is this process of continuing to send in mail ballots after the day of voting. Why can't we fix that on the front end? And then you can't tell me that that's denying people ability to vote when they had 10, year, 10 days prior with the possession of their mail ballot to do that. I, I, I want to close out by saying good luck in the session. I don't think you have any idea what you're in for. <laughs> but, but good you gotta, luck. you got to remember, my whole life has been based on managing crisis. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Michelle Rundells, Tom Tate, and Tim Leonard. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, Tom Fox, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.